Welcome to the Littler Data Talk podcast, exploring the legal impact of big data on employers around the globe. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Data Talk podcast. I'm Aaron Cruz. I'm the firm's chief data analytics officer. And today, I'm really lucky to be joined by Athena Karp, who's the CEO and co-founder of Hired Score. Athena, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. Thrilled to be here. So, Athena, um, kind of just to get our listeners sort of thinking about this a little bit, right? Today's conversation is really about using um, AI in the space of human resources, right? And why human resources is really a, a place that's primed for the adoption of AI, some best practices, and kind of that entire conversation. But before we launch into that, I was really hoping you could kind of provide an overview of who you are, because, you know, I've always been massively impressed by you, which is why you're here in our sort of inaugural edition. And, you know, not only are you sort of on the cutting edge of, of uh, leveraging algorithms in, in the space of HR, but you're also a female CEO of a startup. So you're sort of a rare breed all the way around. So can you tell us a little bit about you just so kind of people have some background? Sure. Well, Aaron, thrilled to be here, as mentioned, and always a pleasure to join everything that Littler does and, and staying at the cutting edge of a space that, you know, personally and as a company we're so passionate about, which is the intersection of legal and artificial intelligence and efficiency and impact to corporates. So thanks so much for having me. A little bit more about my background. Uh, as you mentioned, got started in my career focusing on large technology companies as, as an analyst. Actually focused a lot on HR data, HCM systems, job boards, and the like, and then moved to investing in highly regulated data environments with artificial intelligence technology. So focused on healthcare, which is the place where I kind of got my training in thinking about explainable, testable, auditable algorithms where the cost of being wrong is, you know, a human life or tens of millions of dollars of insurance fraud, for example, which segued into my thinking a lot about how we could bring this new error of algorithms to solve human capital challenges, uh, especially around uh, prevention of bias, fairness in hiring decisions, and alleviating a lot of the unconscious bias that unfortunately creeps into making filtering decisions on candidates and screening and prioritizing some and not all of the qualified people. Uh, so have spent the last six, six and a half years now focused on how we can build this new breed of algorithms that bring process automation in some areas, augment the process in others, and then just decision support in others across uh, hiring. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I actually think the phrase that you just used is, is really kind of interesting. You, you refer to it as decision support, right? And so, you know, I, I think for some of our listeners, at least, um, when they think of AI, right, they think of like HAL or the Terminator, or they think of these um, sort of sort of fantastical, not close to reality uh, sort of versions of the technology. But I think if we could talk a little bit about how Hired Score thinks of using AI in the HR space as sort of decision support, as that kind of sorting mechanism, as the, uh, the, the process for sort of prioritizing and helping people make better decisions. Is that kind of a, a way of thinking about it? 
Yeah, so it's a it's a really great point. And I think it's a really exciting time to be working in the HR tech space because we have the ability, I think, to say where, you know, there's three areas, which is one, where are humans the best decision makers? And this function and this capability should stay solely human. So maybe they benefit from visualizing data or data analysis, but it is a solely human process, like the final decision of who to hire, right? And then we have this, this on the other spectrum, where is a human incapable of even doing this in a fair possible way? For example, looking at every single person who applied in the past, every time they have a new job or looking right. through every passive lead you have every time a new job is created or looking through every employee who might be viable for a promotion, but because of politics or other reasons is not being recommended. And, and yet, you know, usually recruiting doesn't even have access to that data, let alone know every employee across your org. And so that's a place where it's really exciting to apply artificial intelligence where humans are not doing it at all or doing it in a improper way that introduces, you know, keywords or Boolean that then has bias. And then kind of this middle ground of, you know, augmenting the human with technology. So such as screening support. So recommending all the candidates who apply who meet basic and preferred qualifications, but then letting the human decide who to move forward with and who to screen and how to screen them from there. And I think this spectrum of everything across the um, hiring process, always checking in on should this be solely human? Should this be, you know, augmented human capability or should we introduce process automation here? Yeah, see, that's that's fascinating because the, the ability of this technology to really help reshape how parts of the HR process happen, right? The, the the letter that you get that rejects you from a job that says we're going to keep your resume on file for a year or whatever, right? In a lot of places that they're they're keeping your resume on file, but they're not doing anything with that latent file, right? And these these kinds of technologies can really help create a pool of potential talent there for folks who, you know, maybe they were rejected for job A, but they're perfect for job B. They just don't know it exists and they haven't applied, right? Exactly. I think, you know, one of the, the roles of us as HR technology makers is to make the process more human. Um, and it kind of sounds counterintuitive, but it's one of the things we get really excited about. We have clients that will get over a million resumes a year for tens of thousands of jobs, for example. And it's impossible, all the great people who apply that you say, we'll get back to you in the future when there's a good opportunity to stay true to that promise. And we have a product called Fetch, which does sourcing automation of past candidates or passive leads. And when we turned Fetch on a few years back, the first recruiters using it gave us this feedback that people couldn't believe that they actually heard back, you know, three months, six months, 12 months later, or they heard back for another job after being rejected recently, because that's usually an empty promise. And that's where I think there is a lot of, you know, excitement in how we can leverage these new technologies if built right. Um, and the other capability that's exciting is an algorithm, if taught properly, can understand different candidate types. So if we take the example of a civilian resume versus a military resume, if a person is not trained in understanding different army units and different army language in terms of titles in the army, 
they're not going to understand what a corporal means, what a commander means, and yet an algorithm can understand and break that down to skills and relevancy, which also helps different diverse populations get recommended properly in that promise of in the future if there's something relevant. So I think it's dual fold enabling a capability that today is not happening and also enabling consistent and fair treatment across different types of people. I love that you say making it more human, right? Because I'm a technology executive, but I'm very much on team human, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I really believe that the, the entire point of technology is to make people's lives better. And, and the one thing that, you know, is, is actually really fascinating for, for me when we talk about sort of the kinds of technology that you and your team are building is that ability to kind of make it more human, to make it easier to, for instance, recruit veterans or make it easier to reach into this pool of people who maybe they weren't right for job A, but they are perfect for job B. In addition to kind of making it more human and giving those people access, you're actually unlocking these frozen pools of talent for a lot of organizations, right? And that, that's a tremendous up-leveling there as well on the, on the human front, because it makes the, I, I would think, it makes the job of recruiters and HR professionals much more rewarding and quite frankly makes them more efficient and better at their job and able to do that thing where they're supposed to pull in talent, right? It, exactly. And I think one interesting thing to look at is the role of recruiter is increasingly called a talent advisor. And that's that shift from thinking of it as a very proactive filler of a job and viewer of people who apply. And now this function is being looked at more and more to advise the organization. Should we hire a permanent worker or a contingent worker? Should we hire someone remote or in person or overseas or local? And if so, where and what skills do we actually need and how hard are they to come about? And that's just dramatically increased the responsibilities of that function in terms of the knowledge that they have and the time they're able to spend to gain that knowledge and the time they need across the org without technology kind of unlocking different parts of this process that are either, again, as you mentioned, not being done to a fulfillment of a satisfied candidate or not being done fairly or not being done at all they can't also then take on this role of advisor. And that's what I think we get excited about by saying, you know, how do we give them, and as Gary from, from Littler says, the exoskeleton uh, capabilities powered by artificial intelligence as the tool that they use, not as the replacement of them. That's actually a, it's a, it's a cool point right there. And, you know, that the way you kind of phrase that, because I, I heard a, a phrase the other day, I was listening to somebody else's podcast, and they, they referred to algorithms and artificial intelligence tools as your technology coworkers, right? Mm -hmm. That rather than being sort of scared of these technologies or worried about being replaced by these technologies, if you think of them as, or if we think of them as coworkers who are really kind of helping with the, you know, the routinized sort of difficult parts of the job so that we can make better decisions, that that sort of maybe helps take away some of the anxiety and, and makes this a more humanized process. Yeah, 100%. And I think also the when working with these technologies, and this actually goes to some of the benefits of building, you know, explainable algorithms is not just handing this, you know, recruiter or HR professional 
an algorithm that's made a decision that is a black box that you can't understand. I think when you have a technology that explains why did it make these decisions? What's the breakdown of these decisions? How did it arrive at this? You also kind of make it easier for that human to work with that technology coworker because it's communicating to them uh, versus it's a coworker who's sitting there silent and just telling you what to do. And so I think the way that technology um, will be built in being cognizant of when you have a new coworker, as you mentioned it, or you have the exoskeleton, the more explainable and the more that it can help you understand how and in what way it arrived at its decision, you also kind of prevent a lot of the friction in that relationship, if you will, because that human is often then justifying the technology's decision or the technology's um, selection, where if it's a black box and if they can't understand why, they're going to naturally be very frustrated, right? Yeah, and well, and that's interesting too, right? Because to the extent that these technologies are able to explain or convey sort of the reasoning, it also potentially has the byproduct of teaching people to be better at their job, right? Making people more effective recruiters because they start to pick up sort of maybe thought processes or whatever that are at least partly driven by what they're seeing through the machine in ways that they haven't done before, right? Exactly. And I, I think it actually connects to when we think about making the process more human. I also, we get really excited about how technology applied to this space can unlock challenges that today we don't have great answers for. And one of those is kind of saying, how can a technology, for example, help you as a candidate understand what were your gaps in, in requirements in that job that you were really excited about and applied to. Or if you had X, Y, and Z, then you would be a great fit. Or what is the free learning or free training or skills that you need to be more competitive in this? So I think it goes both to the user of the technology and then the person who is impacted by the technology in its explainability and benefits can radiate out. Yeah, you know, it, it, that's fascinating. I had never thought about the benefit to the candidate, right, that that you can shine a light on sort of here's the skill set you were missing or here's the reason you weren't chosen. And if you had taken, you know, if you went and took this class or got that experience or, you know, had this certificate or whatever, you would have been the number one choice or something like that. That that actually um, is kind of a fascinating add on benefit that I had really never considered. Yeah, I, I think it's where we're going um, in terms of the future is saying, you know, the new definition of candidate experience should be more transparency into the decision and process and into what you lacked. We know what you applied for. We know what you were excited about. Um, how do we give you, you know, that information so that you can then go do something with it, hopefully to make yourself a more competitive applicant, but maybe it had nothing to do with your competitiveness. You know, there's actually a correlation between quality of candidate over time improves as the rec gets older, which is usually when you've already moved forward with someone late stage interview offer. And all I know is I applied and the next morning I got a rejection letter. I had no idea 
that actually the person had already been selected and all I feel is the sting of a rejection. So it could be the qualifications you're missing and what are your gaps, but it could just be the process that, you know, the wrong timing of you. And to let someone know that I think is giving so much more respect back for people who take the time to apply to jobs and kind of take the emotional hit that comes with potentially being rejected. Some of our clients have one, two, three percent acceptance rates. A candidate might not even know that and might just feel, well, I didn't get picked again. Again, if, if you shine the light on that, then you create a, a much more human and, and a, a much better experience. Yeah, that, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. You know, since we're talking kind of about how we do this and what the benefits are, maybe we should take half of a back step and, and kind of talk about why, why some of this is really low-hanging fruit in some ways, right? Because you and I have talked at length about how HR really is this very ripe space, right, for the implementation of algorithmic tools, AI-based tools because of, of all of the data that exists around human decisions over time and space, right? Yeah, well, when we talk about the ripeness, one of the things that is very exciting about HR, similar to healthcare, for example, is that unlike self-driving cars or other industries where we don't yet have the data set built up of what should a car do if it makes a turn down a one-way street the wrong way? Or when it's an icy road or all those edge cases haven't been recorded yet to learn. Um, so we have to wait many years to do that. In HR, if you think about you know, the requirements of OFCCP and the EEOC to document and log the jobs that you open, the people who apply, all the information they submit, the status that they got assigned, the reasoning for why they got rejected, for example, you have what is a very robust machine learning set around the jobs that you post and who applies and how they fare. Um, talent management systems, for example, can tell you who got promoted and how and what jobs convert to what jobs over time, cross division departments, cross geographies. Um, so we don't need to wait for that data set to get created. But I think to your broader point, but there are huge compliance risks with many of the AI for HR technologies and applications. They can come from things like uncontrolled learning data sets that might have bias in them, the breeds of unexplainable algorithms. So not all algorithms are black box, but not all algorithms are explainable and testable. So that can incorporate bias and then detecting and unwinding why is very hard to do. Things like untested decision-making that could produce a bias that you don't even know about because you're not applying the right testing frameworks. And then different candidate treatments for different candidate types. So if you rely, for example, solely on certain types of analysis that may fit certain socioeconomic groups versus other, or a video, you know, computer vision algorithm that doesn't see certain skin colors as well as others and then might incorporate a bias. So definitely um, big red flags. Uh, and I'm sure you see this with your client base, just a big hesitation based on this and how to navigate that. So that was a lot all at the same time. Why don't we break that down just a little bit to kind of take those in chunks? Because I think all of those pieces are really important. And I think we kind of have to dive through them because like transparent and explainable AI, really important, right? I mean, I think, I think people are kind of enamored with the concept of AI or mystified by it only because like we don't really understand it a lot of the time. And once you understand that it's just software, it becomes less mysterious, it becomes less mystical. 
and you kind of understand the need to be able to question the output that's coming out of it, right? We, we generally kind of feel okay about questioning software, but if you throw the word AI in front of it or replace software with AI, I think people suddenly uh, feel like they're talking to an oracle and they should just listen. So thinking about a little bit about, you know, what does transparent and explainable really mean in this space, right? Moving away from uh, something where it's a technology that essentially the answer is computer said no, right? Probably kind of unacceptable in the HR space to something that really kind of breaks that down and lets people understand what that mechanism is. Can, can you walk us through your thought process on that a little bit? Yeah, so, so first of all, I think the explainability of algorithms applied to HR is really important. I think the, you know, it's quickest and easiest to stand up a black box algorithm. It's hard to build explainable algorithms, takes a lot of time, takes the right professional who understands and has experience doing that. So I understand why, you know, certain people might have gone the other route, but I, I think explainable algorithms are, are the future of our space. And, and when we talk about explainable algorithms, I, I do think it's important that explainable doesn't mean full transparency in all components in all ways. Uh, I think it's saying, how do we understand what furthers the legal frameworks and legal precedents that we are aware of, and then apply the best solution for it? So for example, all the data that comes in, input and output, should be fully documented, fully explained, um, and fully stored, right? But when we talk about what happens inside, if you will, I think the things that, for example, if we talk about recruiting, you know, what were the basic and preferred qualifications understood from this particular job versus this one? That should be fully documented. And then what led me, so we take, for example, structured decision-making engines, which is a very valid way of saying, this part of the resume and this experience and this education qualification led me to believe you as a candidate met the basic quals of this job. But that doesn't mean that you can't use any of the more advanced machine learning or neural nets or deep learning tactics. It's just where and how you use them. So a great example of being explainable, but also using cutting edge data science that can actually benefit the ability for diversity and inclusion would be to say, if this is a job that says you need a degree in statistics or related field, that can usually dramatically open up the funnel of potential candidates beyond just statistics degrees, which might be you know, highly correlated towards one gender or towards a certain group of ethnicity groups, but not include others. And then if you say, or related fields, or related is not keyword matchable, but an algorithm can learn degrees in statistics or related. Related means all this migrate of different things. And then you're actually, you know, using more advanced technologies, doing machine learning, but then being able to explain it back to a specific criteria or capability after that machine learning has happened. That's interesting because um, in those situations, right, that your, your underlying training data is really, really important, right? How you, how you help tease out what is a related field, for instance, to statistics, right? So the idea that, that here, because these technologies are particularly prone to garbage in, garbage out, spending some time thinking about kind of training on controlled data sets. And then, you know, I think to the 
kind of the point you were making there at the end, the, the training on controlled data sets and then testing for bias in output, right, in a, in a really kind of thoughtful way in order to kind of tease out who's potentially getting left behind, right? Exactly. Actually, it raises a really interesting point because you can test inputs and outputs and you can also test if, if you're building the right types of algorithms, you can also test each specific component to see, did this generate bias? And if so, is it job related? So, for example, one of the biggest things we see generating bias is the basic qualification of the role, that it requires a master's degree and then it requires more than five years of experience especially if this is an industry where it has been predominantly male and the entrance of women is at a lower percentage or more recent, unlike certain technical or blockchain areas, then you might see if you dropped the requirements to two years instead of five, and you drop the degree to a bachelor's instead of master's, you might dramatically open up the funnel. So we can actually detect all the different parameters that are leading to certain groups being more qualified than others, but if that is a job related and requirement to perform this role, then that then that should be allowed, right? And that's you know usually up to companies right. to validate and verify. Right. Um, but I think the other component is when you are learning from the data to make sure not just testing, but you do everything you can to make sure the data you learn from is as even as possible. So one of the ways you can do that. Uh, in technology, for example, is to say, if this is a job where 80% of the candidates who apply are male, and thus selection rates would also even have a bias, I don't want to learn 80% male and 20% female, even if I try to strip out the components that I think are more common for males. So, you know, that um, a all-male high school or you know, predominantly male uh, sports or words or language that's used. I might go through all of that, but if I'm still feeding the learning an 80% of one group and 20% of another, there would typically be impossible to even, you know, detect and understand components that are learned. So one of the things we do is make sure that any learning set that we train off of is even in terms of gender and ethnicity groups. Um, and, and, you know, there's different methods you can use, but we kind of downsize that to um, right. to the components so that you're always looking at if I only have 10 percent of this ethnicity group and, you know, 40 percent of another and 30 percent of another, everyone should be at 10 percent so that I'm not inadvertently learning things that I don't even know to detect are biased. Right. So downsizing or downcycling the, the data set so that you get to something that is roughly proportionate or even right exactly exactly yeah so smart and and you know so many people that don't sort of think about that i mean this is this is the interesting thing right and then this is why you're you're kind of an anomaly for lots of reasons but you know a lot of times at least in my experience the engineers who are building these tools right they're engineers and so they're looking to solve a problem that they don't have sort of the the experiential background around sort of legal requirements and, and so that the they don't think a lot of times about these kinds of issues and if they do it's post build right so that the the whole process of going back kind of fixing these things can be very expensive or happens on the heels of something really problematic in terms of like it was used it was found to be um, uh, discriminatory or having a disparate impact on some group 
and now you're left to try and fix it in the aftermath of that mess, right? Yeah. Well, and and I think that's that's actually, you know, people will often say, well, we we do run testing and we eliminate name and um, distance to job and all these other parameters, but that's not going to be enough because usually the things that will lead to um, specific treatment that are not job related. We find, for example, the highest correlation of selection and this line item on the resume called hobbies and extracurriculars. Um, so that's you know your fraternity name or what sports you played, which is totally not job related unless you're hiring a professional athlete. And that's where I think you know the builders of this, it's one thing to say, we make sure to test at the end, but testing at the end and then taking it live without all these other frameworks in place to control overtime and control, you know, machine learning that might happen after, or it might look fine on the test set, but then as different populations came in, you didn't know that the treatment would be that way. So I think the only way to really control for that is to put in place frameworks that even as data changes or as the brains are evolved, they still keep that consistent framework. Right. Thinking of bias and compliance testing like bug testing. Right. So you really understand, like, here's what it's looking at and here's how it's weighting those things. And here's here's the data that's going in and here's what output looks like. Where Where is that landing? Right. Exactly. And, and we see that a lot in this space. I think people tend to think about compliance as this checklist item that, yep, as long as we do this and then produce the white paper, we're good to go. But actually, we treat compliance like a product line. Um, so it should be right. incorporated in every single product spec, in every data science feature or capability before it goes live. It should be tested to verify it doesn't have an adverse impact on each specific client brain and each specific product vertical, you know, and, and kind of making sure even account management teams logging feature requests, they should be trained and understand what are non-compliant requests and make sure, you know, we had just the other day that a recruiter had asked for the ability to see gender in the people who applied for their jobs for a good intention of making sure they have a balanced slate. But then right there, you've now connected, you know, candidate data with gender data at the point of decision-making, which in this case, it was trying to be used for a good intention, but in the hands of a wrong person, seeing both those data sets um, is never something we want to do. So I think it's it's continuing to think about it as um, a living, breathing thing that's always evolving. And especially as your products grow or as they get enhanced or as new features come up, um, making sure those frameworks are always applied. You know, it's such a great way of looking at it. The way I sometimes sort of phrase this tongue firmly in cheek to folks is that when you're when you're building these products, right, because a lot of times this technology is sort of far ahead of any sort of real legal guidance, right, in the form of case law or precedent or anything we can really point to and say, you know, them's is the rules, right? I sort of say, you know, we, as we're, we're thinking about how you're going to build this and how you're going to test for it and, and how you're going to um, sort of think about this from a compliance standpoint, we really need to be thinking about how we tell a story and how we were trying to get this right to a group of people who aren't going to be sympathetic, right, at all when it comes, when you're sort of, you know, you, your end client is potentially sitting in a courtroom sort of defending decisions that were made leveraging this kind of technology, right? And so we have to be able to sort of tell a story ex post 
around what happened and why it happened and, and, and how the decisions were made and what sort of level of, of impact the technology had and how it got to where it got to, right? So that leads us to things like logging and, and sort of that, that base testing regimen, the ability to say, here's how we test. And, and then that plays out in the following way, in this case, through logs, right? And so I think logs are another place where, you know, a lot of products kind of give short shrift. Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't understand how valuable they are down the line. And so I'd, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts around logging and kind of where you think of best practices. And I know we've used the phrase in some of our conversations, or rather you've used the phrase, I've heard the phrase, because um, I love it. It's that logs should speak human, yes. right? And so I'd, like, I'd love for you to kind of dive into that a little bit, because I think that that is a really um, a powerful sort of thought process. Yeah, well, and I think this is a common misconception when you read the press, you might think that any AI in HR is this black box that logs nothing, that explains nothing, and that's what you're stuck with and you're just stuck with the end decision. But there's many of us taking very conscious effort to not have that be the case, and it doesn't have to be the case with AI. So it's not a trade-off of unexplainability and unlogged and great decision-making or business impact or, you know, very comprehensive logs. You can have both today, which is very exciting. So the way that we define it is to say, what, what would your best practices be for a human? And, and you mentioned something interesting, Aaron, which is case law. We might not have case law or so many precedences about AI applied to HR, but we do have decades of, you know, selection technologies and tools, companies like Resumix that did scoring of applicants and selection processes or assessments that we can learn a lot from those case laws about um, what were best practices. And that's where we, we get to learn about, you know, physically and logically separating EEO data from point of decision making or any decision analysis whatsoever, and only using it in aggregated anonymized format for testing. One, a log should prove that, what went in, um, what was used and, and, what, and what went out. But a log should also show in our case, for example, what you would expect of a human. And if you took a human to court, you would have to say, for this particular job, here's all the information I had on this candidate. Here's what I thought was relevant and what made me think this candidate and not this candidate was more relevant. It's here, here, here on the resume and here in their application question and here in their assessment score. And a log should maintain that exact same language, not in zeros and ones, but in explainability that you know has that same essence of being able to show what was used in the decision and how that decision um, resulted in the recommendation or the lack of recommendation. Right. No, that, I, I mean, I think that, that that's such a great framework, right, for thinking about how to, to build tools that are ultimately going to be really valuable to the end user, right, not just in terms of, of outcome, but in terms of being able to defend decisions because, you know, there, I mean, the bottom line is that's really important particularly when you're making decisions about people's lives, right? Not everybody's happy with the decision that gets made around them. And when that's, when they're not happy, they go to court and now you're left trying to explain it. And if the, the tool you use doesn't have the tools to enable that, you got a problem, right? I, I totally agree. And I think it's a, it's a great way of thinking about it, a great point actually, which is the end user is not just the recruiter. And we discussed earlier, the end user is not just the candidate who gets recommended in the future or gets more transparency around why. The end user, if you're building AI for HR, is also compliance teams or or HR professionals who might have to go to court 
hopefully never, you know, um, for the people listening to this, but might have to go to court and explain a decision that was, you know, supported by a technology and made by a human and someone who would have to explain that or a legal counsel that would have to explain that. And so I think when we're talking about artificial intelligence, these stakeholders that you have to treat as end users and then build the appropriate technology and tools and logging and output for them it has to be taken into account. I, I agree with that a hundred percent, but I, I'm I'm still like I'm I'm struck by the the uh, the possibility that you raised earlier that we can leverage these kinds of technologies to help up level applicants who don't get chosen, right? To basically help them see here is the skill you were missing, or here's the experience you were missing, or the education piece, or whatever, in order to help point them in a direction that that will move them toward the job that they want, right? That would have an ancillary benefit theoretically, uh, of also, like, if I, I tend to believe a couple of things, right? I tend to believe that happiness, like an individual's happiness or level of happiness is generally speaking directly correlated to how closely their expectations match reality, right? I can tell you something is going to be terrible. And if it is terrible, but I've really sort of informed you of that, you might not like it, but you're not going to be like really unhappy with me. You're kind of going to be like, okay, you told me it was going to be terrible, and it was. I think where we where people kind of have a hard time, and I think a lot of litigation in the HR space, right, happens because people are, are upset, and that that level of upset is largely driven by a lack of understanding, right? Mm-hmm. So a, a tool that says to people, hey here are the reasons you, you know, you weren't picked or you didn't score higher or whatever. And if you had this, this, and this, here's where you would have come in. I, I think that that also potentially goes a long way toward killing off some level of, uh, of legal uh, uh, follow-up, right? Because it, it's, it's educating people. It's kind of helping them understand what happened so that maybe they're not as upset. Maybe it's like, okay, cool. I, 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 I got to go work for this, right? A hundred percent. And maybe even avoiding that disappointing solution to begin with. So, you know, we're starting to see the request to apply algorithms before someone even applies. Um, If they're, you know, given enough information and starting to express interest in working at the company, how do you deliver to them the job that you know they have the highest likelihood of getting versus today expect a person chooses the right job for them at the right time and kind of needle in a haystack, and then that person has that very negative experience. Right, and that's also where, like we talked about earlier, the the ability to leverage these technologies to unlock these pools of folks who have, who have expressed a real interest in working for your company and been rejected for whatever reason from the job to which they applied, right? That's also part of that, like, it's a better experience because it's, hey, and you know, maybe that's part of this thing too, I hadn't thought about that, but maybe, you know, at some point down the line, it's not just, hey, here's the job you applied for. You didn't get it. And here are the reasons why. But based on your resume, here are four jobs that you might be perfect for. Absolutely. I do think, though, one of the things that's interesting for us to discuss and, and you know, for for uh, this population is this notion that uh, sometimes I'll see technologies working in the sourcing or working in the passive candidate space think that these requirements to have bias-free selections, to test, to data log, to ensure specific treatment aligned with basic preferred qualifications are only applicable for active candidates who apply 
under the internet applicant rule definition. And, and what we see now, especially we take a more cautious approach at Hired Score of saying, actually, there's certain principles that should apply to both active and passive candidate technologies, because if that passive person does at some point convert and become an applicant, how you found them, how you source them, how you found them and not others to even invite to apply does become important as part of that record and trail. And so I, I do think there's just the requirement in our space to say the world is not, you know, so black and white as, you know, active applicants have this really regimented treatment, but passive, it's a wild west. I think there should be more and more of these similar controls applied to passive. Yeah, the idea that kind of similarly situated people should be dealt with in the same way, sort of irrespective of the, of their their sourcing. Exactly. I always love to ask folks in the space about their view of the future, right? Just as kind of turning this podcast into my own informal version of a poll of experts around the future of artificial intelligence and where are we going. And so the way I like to, to phrase this is your view on sort of the evolution of AI, where are we going, right? Are we going toward, are we gonna get to a place where we have sort of artificial general intelligence, right? That thing that really stands on its own. Or is, is the reality that we're moving probably more toward a wo world where we are surrounded by ubiquitous, narrow artificial intelligence that helps us in sort of the, the synthesis and filtering and prioritization process sort of across our lives? What do you think? Well, I, you know, I don't have, I don't have the answers to that. Um, but what I can tell you is if I look in our space, what we've seen, you know, building in this industry over the last seven years, um, over six years of having live applications in this space, we were quite early to this. And what I can tell you is what we've seen is these pockets of where AI is bringing tremendous value. So for example, process augmentation of screening and sourcing, um, candidate search being done in a smart, consistent way, bias removal of how jobs are written automatically with, with smart algorithms or scheduling automation and candidate care automation. So, and, and that is not a general AI that's doing the best work in that. It's actually verticalized and specialist when we say, you know, scheduling and candidate care, that's a specialist at conversational AI for people applying to jobs. And, you know, the, the sourcing and screening, it's not a general, the same artificial intelligence you're using to find sales leads should not be applied to candidate sourcing and selection, even if data inputs are very similar and the outcome of finding the best people or finding people that convert is similar. And I think that goes to, especially in our space where the regulatory component and constructing it mindful and conscious of all these frameworks, a general intelligence that does that for every vertical in every industry, I think is something that's to date impossible. And you know, the best technologies we see are really those that are masters at understanding the systems, the data, the inherent challenges and regulatory hurdles of that industry and also the end users, which as we talked about, are not just in this case, the recruiters, but the em employment law team and the HRIS team and the candidates themselves and have an appropriate experience for each component. Wow, uh, Athena, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was, uh, this was great. I mean, I'm, I'm left thinking about a whole bunch of stuff that even though you and I kind of have this 
conversation quasi-regularly. I'm left coming out of this with sort of stuff that I'm, I'm noodling on that I hadn't thought of uh, before today. So thank, thank you so much for you know, sitting here and walking through, you know, a space where you are the, the hands-down expert and sort of helping me and, and anybody listening to this kind of get arms around it. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Aaron, for having me. And I think just, you know, we, we talked about the risks and the downside, but I think just on, on a positive note of ending, some of the things we get most excited about is how can this technology, you know, much more broadly help us solve fundamental challenges, like the growing skills gap and those that will be left out of the workforce, um, those that need to be upskilled, taught and trained. And I get really excited, I think, as a collective industry of how we can all weather we're competitors or alliances or, you know, third parties, how we all need to understand that, you know, working in this space does come with a great responsibility of making sure we also turn our knowledge and technology for good. So always excited to, to further explore that. And thank you so much for having me. Like I said, thanks for being here. And um, a couple of points as we go out the door, right? With respect to kind of uh, being involved and helping with upskilling and all that, if that's something that any of our listeners, and Athena, you're, you're a part of this already, right? Our uh, Littler has a, an entity that we co-founded called the Emma Coalition, which you're a part of. And that coalition is really, it's a nonpartisan group that is really trying to figure out how we, as a group, right, build policies um, or best practices to help upskill people so that they're ready for the jobs of tomorrow, and that is automation and artificial intelligence does engage in some level of displacement of jobs, that we have people who are upskilled and ready to step into these jobs of the future. So that's, that's the first thing. And if you're listening to this and, you're, and that's something that strikes a chord with you, please go to littler.com, look for the Emma Coalition, it's E-M-M-A, and, and feel free to join us in that conversation because uh, that's a powerful one that I'm particularly deeply wedded to. Um, if you are generally interested in the topics uh, that we kind of went through on the podcast today, please join us for future episodes of this podcast. And then if you're interested in more information on Littler, on our big data process or projects, and or in our uh, AI or automation practices, please go to littler.com and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Aaron. Always fun to be together. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.